In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Our Lord first requests a drink of water, and then reveals to a woman the thirsting of her soul. John tells us, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. But, much like Nicodemus before, much like others we find in John's Gospel, and even around us in our own lives, this woman can only think in an earthly, fleshly way. If you remember, when Jesus told Nicodemus that he must be born again, Nicodemus said, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time and be born again? That's earthly, fleshly thinking. And so when Jesus says to the Samaritan woman that he can give her water of life, all she could think to say is, Sir, you've got nothing to draw with and the well is deep. That too is earthly, fleshly thinking. Even after Jesus said to her, whoever drinks the water I give will never be thirsty again, still this woman doesn't get it. She can only conceive of earthly bodily thirst. So she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to the well and draw water. Well, that which is flesh is flesh. She did not see that Jesus was indeed infinitely greater than her father Jacob. She could not see that while Jacob with his well and water could quench earthly bodily thirst and only that for a time, Jesus with his well and his water could cure the deepest thirsting and longing of our souls. She could not see that Jesus himself is a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So then Jesus said to the woman, go call your husband and come here. The woman said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. And with a twinkle in his eye, he says, so what you've said is true, technically. And with these words, Jesus shows her the result of her soul's thirsting. Thirsting and being unsatisfied. Thirsting and being unsatisfied. If not in the first husband, 
then perhaps in the second I'll be satisfied. Oh, not in the second, then perhaps in the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and so on. You might even resonate, having tried to quench the thirst of your own soul with your spouse and found that they weren't up to the task. Or you might have tried the same with spouse after spouse. But that thirsting of the soul has many different ways we try to quench it. Perhaps your way is with money. But the problem with money is it's never enough. Once you have more, you only want more. You can never be satisfied. And the same is true, by the way, with success. And still more success. Or accomplishment. And still more accomplishment. With nice things and still nicer things, with experiences, and more experiences still. The simple truth is that none of it fulfills. None of it remains satisfying. The thirst always returns. The words of Augustine could not be more true. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Only Jesus himself can quench our longing, and only that which Jesus gives can quench our thirsting. You see, in sinning against God, in turning our backs to our Maker, in having everything our own way, we have cut ourselves off from the one we need the most and cut ourselves off from the very one for whom we were created. And God, in return for our evil, shows his goodness his almost unspeakable goodness, and his love, his most wonderful love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we still hated God, God loved us. While we still pursued ourselves and our own selfish wants, God pursued us, and he gave to us a gift beyond comprehension that through the suffering and death of his own beloved son, we might be restored to him as sons. All our betrayals of God, all the sinful thirsting of our souls, all the sinful ways in which we've tried to quench that thirst, were all laid on Jesus. So much so that when he was on the cross, he even said, I thirst. Out of deepest love for us, Christ, who knew no thirst, bore our thirst. 
And Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might have our thirst quenched in him, both now and for all eternity. And this is what faith clings to in all things. It clings to Jesus, to Christ and him crucified. Faith doesn't cling to our own good works. Faith doesn't cling to itself. Faith doesn't cling to anything. It clings to Jesus only. So St. Paul writes in our epistle, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But listen to what Paul says next. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. And Paul goes on to say, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. God's love has been poured into our hearts. And indeed, it is continually poured into our hearts. God's love was poured into your heart at your baptism, when he claimed you as his own forever. God's love is poured into your heart every time you hear his fatherly word. God's love is poured into your heart every time the blood of Jesus is poured into your lips. And so even now, God quenches the restlessness of our souls with nothing less than the Holy Spirit himself being given to us. And all this, as Paul says, so that we might rejoice in sufferings. Because we know that our God and Father is working his goodness both in us and through us. This is a deep and profound mystery of our God. First, he loves us enough to die for us. And second, he loves us so much, he conforms us into his image so that we would die for others. He calls us not only to receive the benefits of Christ's suffering, but also to suffer with Christ. And so in due time also to share in his glory and in all Christian hope fulfilled. It's not enough for us to be redeemed by Christ. God would so honor us that we become little Christs. 
And that's why even in the midst of suffering or pandemic or grief, we may nonetheless rejoice because in our crosses, we recognize His cross. In our suffering, His suffering. In our death, His death. And also, the hope to come in His resurrection, our resurrection. From the spear-pierced side of Christ the crucified flows the water of eternal life. We drink, and we find that not only does he quench our deepest thirsting, but that he is also that of which the prophets foretold. He is the new temple from which the streams of living water flow. And so therefore, even now, we worship the everlasting Father. Not on Gerizim, as the Samaritan woman thought, nor in Jerusalem, as the Jews thought. But wherever Jesus is, there is the new temple of our God. Wherever Jesus is, we worship in spirit and in truth. For he is the truth, and he has poured out upon us and in us his Holy Spirit so that we might have hope and even rejoicing in times such as these. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please rise and confess.